Well, I uh, invite you to turn with me again this morning to the book of Job. Uh, we are going to um, be in the book of Job again. I've covered um, most of chapter 1 and 2 over the last several uh, sessions that I've had with you all. Uh, and it is not my desire to, um, to walk through the, the remaining portions verse by verse. I'm going to give you a, a very high view today of, or overview of what happened in really the, the bulk of the book of Job on today. It's going to be a 30,000 foot view today. Um, just by way of review, if you were not in here during those times, and if you're, if you're not familiar with the book of Job, um, we've covered, again, chapter 1. Specifically, we covered uh, the character of Job, and we saw that Job was described as a man who um, was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. He was a very righteous man, a holy man. Um, and we remember from the account of the book of Job that uh, God put Job to the test uh, and, and offered him up to Satan and said, have you considered my servant Job? And of course, uh, Satan maligned Job's name. And so Job's character was maligned. And the question that was presented to God by Satan was, does, God, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. And he put this challenge, he says, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And so God, God took that challenge and presented his choice servant, Job, uh, to allowed Satan to afflict him, and Satan did just that. He afflicted Job. Uh, in fact, Job lost everything humanly imaginable short of his own life. He lost his homes. He lost his livestock. He lost his ten children that God had blessed him with. If you go over into chapter 2, where another... Occasion was given to Satan to afflict Job. Um, he loses his health, where he's afflicted with boils on his body from the, t from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. And even his wife turns against him in chapter 2, where she encourages Job to curse God and to die. And so we saw... Job's character expressed in chapter 1, as we saw, that Job's response to the calamity that came upon him was not to curse the name of God, but instead it says that Job rose, arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and he worshipped God. That was his response. This revealed the character of Job. Job was a godly man, not just outwardly, but, but even from the inside, when all of his outward possessions and everything that we would say would prop up a man were removed from him, Job continued to worship God. We see a beautiful picture of a man in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his suffering, worshiping God. He worshiped God. Now, in chapter 3, after this mountaintop experience where Job is worshiping God, we saw Job in the valley of despair. And I think these words really highlight what Job endured during that time in verses 1 through 3. It says, afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was to be born. And the night which said, a boy is conceived. I titled that the soliloquy of sorrow. Job was a man of sorrow. He was grief stricken over the loss of all that God had blessed him with. And particularly his children. 
and his wife. He was grief-stricken. And so, now entering into this, in between Job's soliloquy of sorrow, and now, and the initial uh, response of Job in, of the, to these things, in verse 11 of chapter 2, we find Job's friends. And I said to you several weeks ago, I wanted to bring out a few things surrounding Job's friends and, and how they responded to Job's calamity. So beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, I'm going to read through the end of verse uh, of the chapter. It says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe. And they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him. For they saw that his pain was very great. It says here at the end, they did not speak a word. Now, we know from chapter 4 until chapter 31, they did speak a word to Job. And we know that those words were harmful and hurtful to Job. In verses 4 through 31, in chapters, chapters 4 through 31, we see, we have a, a, a series of soliloquies or monologues by uh, Job's friends, his three friends, uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And there are three cycles, by the way, of those, of those uh, soliloquies or those monologues when, when they are uh, uh, bringing forth what they believe to be true about the situation. And so it, just kind of give you the structure of this, in, from chapters 4 through 31, we have three cycles of speeches. Bildad speech, I'm sorry, uh, Eliphaz speaks. Then Job responds, and then Bildad speaks, Job responds, and then uh, Zophar speaks, and Job responds. And this carries on for three cycles until the last cycle, only, only uh, Eliphaz and Bildad actually speak in that last cycle. Zophar is silent, and then in comes Elihu Another who was present, apparently, during this time, who was a younger uh, uh, person who came along and was offering his own counsel during that time. Now, entering now on this devastating scene are Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Some commentators say that perhaps they initially went to Job's former dwelling place, and found the absolute devastation of his home and his land, and now directed to go to the ash heap, Job's friends find this man here. They were told it was Job, but this man looked nothing like Job. You all have experienced this. You have a relative or a friend that you has been stricken with sickness. They've been hospitalized. This sickness has caused them to lose a significant amount of weight. And you go into the hospital room, and they are unrecognizable. This is what they are experiencing as they see this man, their friend Job. It says again in verse 12 that when they lifted up their eyes at a distance, they did not recognize him. His face was marred and his Body was disfigured beyond recognition from the boils that Satan had afflicted him with. This was not what they were expecting. When they walked into this room, they were not, or walked and saw Job, they were not expecting to see what they saw. It was beyond what they could have imagined. It was like the Queen of Sheba when she saw the wealth and the riches of Solomon. Not the half had been told. 
it was overwhelming. It was actually probably mind-boggling to them to see this man whom they had befriended, a man of wealth and prestige, now reduced to what they see before them. And they knew, of course, from the report that this friend of theirs needed some help. And so they came to comfort him. He needed comfort. People who are in dire situations, who are devastated, believers and followers of Jesus Christ, they need comfort. And God promises us that we will receive comfort in our time of adversity. In Psalm 23, 4, the psalmist says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You need comfort during your time of tragedy. We may think we don't, but in times of difficulty like this, in overwhelming adversity, which is what Job is experiencing here, he needed comfort from others. The Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians Two or Second Corinthians one, it says, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ." He, he, he refers to God in this way: the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. He said, "Who comforts us in all our affliction?" He goes on to say, "So that we will be able to comfort those who are in the, any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted." By God. And so this reminds us that we are to be agents of God. That we're to be comforters as, as, as God has comforted us. We ourselves as believers, as when, when God has dealt with us in this gracious way, we are reminded that we too are to be comforters of those who are going through various afflictions. And this is what Job's friends wanted to do. They wanted to comfort Job. But if we know the story of, of what happened in the, in, the, in, in the book of Job, we know that that did not take place. Job's friends did not comfort him. Their words were not words of comfort. They did not bring him peace and comfort during this time of tragedy. In fact, Job described them in Job 16, verses 1, or verses 2, he, he describes them as sorry comforters, he says, are you all? He calls them sorry comforters. Miserable, some of your translations say, he called them miserable comforters. So what they sought to do, they did not accomplish as they came to comfort their friend Job. He even says, how then will you vainly comfort me? For you, your answers remain full of falsehood. So today I would like to consider the counsel, the comfort that, that the friends of Job gave to him under these four headings. The approach of Job's friends, the assessment of Job's friends, the accusations of Job's friends, and the answers of Job's friends. Let us first consider the approach, I might even say the affection of Job's friends. Although we read of Job's friends and, and they, they have received a bad name, one of the things we must admit is that these were Job's friends. As sorry as, as sorry comforters they were, yes, they were, they still were nonetheless Job's friends. They were his friends. They were, and I would say they were true friends, too. And I would say they were good friends. Bad counselors, good friends. Those are not things that are contradictory to one another. You can be a good friend and a bad counselor. You can be a good counselor and a bad friend. Those two things are not synonymous. 
But if you are a good friend, you need to work on your counseling because there are going to come times when you have to counsel your friends. But these men were poor counselors, but I would say they were good friends. First of all, consider their mission. We find this in verse 11. It says, now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place. They came. This was not a drive from from Matthews to Indian Trail to get to to their friend and to or from Matthews to down to the hospital in downtown Charlotte. That's not what kind of trip this was. This was a cross country trip, maybe from from a bus ride, maybe from from the East Coast to the West Coast at best. It would have taken them. Weeks, perhaps, to even get to Job. It was a sacrifice that they would have taken They would have left their businesses at home, their families, their livestock, their servants. They probably were of a like status socioeconomically with Job. And so they would have left all of that behind to come and to minister to their friend. That's what true friends do. That's what they do. They 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 come in your time of need. And. This is precious in the in the sight of the saints. When when those who are who are or in going through adversity, when others come and make sacrifices to be with them. They came. And it wasn't like a one or two hour visit. They came and they stayed. We know at least for a week because it says that they stayed with him on the ground in silence for an entire week. Night and day, 24 hours around the clock, sitting there with their friend, waiting patiently to comfort him. They stayed. They were, these were no what we would call fair weather friends. These were true friends. They were true friends. Notice that they, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 8, notice that where they visited Job. And where Job was residing at the time, Job was residing among the ashes. We think in our mind, you know, maybe some ashes on the ground. This is like a this is like a garbage dump. This is a it's called a trash heap. In this place, there was the burning of trash. of Dung. One commentator says in ancient times, the city dump was where garbage and dunk were burned, dung were burned, and wild animals, animals were known to roam. This is a site of horrible sights, smells, a very real danger, and nothing pleasant. One commentator said this, friends aren't turned off by distasteful sights. On the contrary, they come alongside And they get as close as possible. Friends are not offended because the room has a foul smell. Friends don't turn away because the one they've come to be with has been reduced to the shell of his former self, weighing half of what he used to weigh. Friends see beyond all of that. They don't walk away because the bottom has dropped out of your life and you're at your wit's end. On the contrary, that draws them in. Which reminds me of Proverbs 17, 17. It says, a friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. It's a true friend. It's a true friend. Notice also. Again, that they stayed with him. They were there. Consider this. One of the best ways that we can minister to people is not always by our words, but by our presence. By just simply being there. Pastor Greg 
communicated this some time ago. It's one of the best ways that you can minister to those in the body of Christ when they are going through adversity is just to be there. In 2005, my mother suddenly passed away. I drove to Tennessee. My wife and I are there. I can't remember where the children were at that time. I think they may have been with you, with Angela. And we were there, and I had to do the eulogy for my mother. I looked out over the sea of faces. She had a graveside service. And I saw Pastor Greg. He was a true friend. It was four hours away. It wasn't, it wasn't a timely thing. He had preparation, but he was there. He was a true friend at that time. Consider now the motivation of Job's friends. Some people say that Job's friends had ulterior motives. But I think we need to take what the text says here. It says here, they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and to comfort him. That was their motivation. They came there to comfort Job. They failed. They did not succeed at this, but I believe that that was the motivation because the scriptures are given to us and tell us why they came. They had no other motivation but to come there as a true friend, as true friends of Job, and to, to comfort him in his time of adversity. They're there to sympathize with him and to comfort him. They didn't have desires of, of, of being able to just counsel Job, but their end was to comfort him. They didn't just want to make their, not, their minds known to Job. They didn't just want to, just to flex their theological muscles and, and tell Job all the things that they knew about God and about his situation. No, they came there with the intent of comforting Job. Now, I believe what happened, they came with that intent. They saw what had happened to Job, absolutely overwhelmed by the circumstances. They could not believe what they had seen, what they were seeing. Then they also saw Job in chapter three, and we see his response there of him wanting to die. And they were like, what do we do with this? I think they were just counseling. We'll talk about this out of their theology that was distorted, needed correcting. But nonetheless, I do believe their motivation was pure. They had pure motives when it came to their desire to minister to Job. Notice also their mourning. Notice their mourning. It says, verse 12, when they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe and they thrust dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him. For they saw that his pain was very great. It was very great. So they sat there and they mourned with him. It says that they wept. They wept. They lifted up their voices and they wept. They were weeping with those who weep, were mourning with their friend Job who was mourning They cried. This picture here is not of a a tear just trickling down the eyes. It's it's an overwhelming weeping of of a loud wailing that proceeds out out of great and sustained grief. But they wept with him. 
lifted up their voices and wept. It was a loud cry. They were so overwhelmed by the state of their friend that the only natural and human response was to weep. They wept for their friend. And it says, and each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. It says, then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him. For they saw that his pain was very great. They sat down with him. Here they are in the, in the, in the, in the, again, the city dump with Job. Trash burning around them, dung on fire all around them. And they're here, sitting on the ground with him, weeping with him, sitting with him in silence. They sat in silence. Now, if you've read the book of Job and heard any commentary on this, they, you would hear that they, they would say, people say this, that Job's friends were at their best when they were silent. When they were silent. The Proverbs say this, even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. This is instructive to us. When we go to visit people in their calamity, in their adversity, we don't always need to speak. You don't always have to have a, I got a word for you from God. Sometimes the best cordial for your friend is that you sit there and you weep with them. And you're there at their side. Your presence may be the cordial that they need more than even any kind of words you can draw out of your, your theological understanding of what's happening. It may be best that you're silent. There's a place to speak. And there's a time to speak during times of difficulty. There's a time to be silent. And be present for that person. In a book entitled Women Helping Women, there's a story in here of a man who, his name is Joseph Bailey, and he loses his three sons suddenly. It says here, he recounts his stay and people who visited him in his grief. It says, I was sitting torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. It says, I was unmoved, except to wish he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. He says, I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. The writer says, grieving and dying persons are often so overwhelmed by their loss that it is difficult for them to concentrate or to try to track with lengthy explanations. So we don't need to go, what she's saying there is you don't need to go into all the details about the sovereignty of God and, and everything that comes along with that. That can be overwhelming. They're not even tracking with you. They're thinking about their circumstances. Everything that's happening to them at that time is overwhelming their thinking. They're thinking about all the lost time now. They're thinking about the, the why this happened, where it came from, what they could have done potentially to, to prevent it. They're thinking about all the things that 
are surrounding that and lengthy discussions can be lost. It's better to be simple and direct and clear and plain and give the person time to process that information and their tragedy. You'll understand how it is when, when you, when you, because you know the truth, and those things are going through your mind too. You need to be reminded of it, yes, but a lengthy discussion about those things can be overwhelming for the mind during a time of tragedy. And we need to be sensitive about this. You need to know who you're talking about, talking to. Some people, by the way, they might need that. They might need a longer discussion about certain things. But for the vast majority of people, a simple, I'm praying for you. I'm here for you. I love you. God is still in control. It's all they need to hear. So those, that was the approach of Job's friends. Consider now the assessment of Job's friends. Consider the assessment of Job's friends. Job's friend's assessment of the situation was this simple. Job must have done something really bad because his circumstances are really bad. That's very simple. That's what they, they had in their minds, a retributive idea of who God was. Because Job was suffering right now, He must have done something really bad. They come on the scene. Job is sitting down on ashes. They've seen the devastation of his property. They saw where the whirlwind had taken out their children's home. His livestock are gone. They see the boils on Job's body. Pustulal, pustulal. Pus oozing out of those boils because he had been scraping his skin with those with that clay that clay pottery, dried up, disgusting. The man, a shell of who he was. He must have done something really bad. It must have been awful. There were probably things going through their minds. Did he kill somebody? What happened? Why did he, what happened to, the, to this man, Job, who was once a flourishing and vibrant member of society, a godly man? What happened to him? Something happened to him, and what happened to him was the result of his sin, because in their minds, this is how God operated. Now, this is shown in various places. In Job chapter 4, the first person to speak here is Eliphaz. And Eliphaz says this, he says, remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. He's saying that principle of sowing and reaping. If you plow these things, you're going to sow or you're going to reap, you're going to harvest iniquity. It says, by the breath of God, they perish, and by the blast of his anger, they come to an end. Now, Bildad the Shuhite says this in chapter 8. He says, how long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a mighty wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert what is right? If your son sinned against him, This is cutting right here. You hear what he said right there? If your son sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. You see in verse 
in chapter 2 where they, they, they waited patiently. They didn't say a thing to him because what? They saw how great his pain was. Now you see them there. Now they're taking shots at him. They said, your sons died in essence because they, of, of their transgressions. This is what they're saying right here. Because they had to have done something to receive the punishment that they received. Because this is how God operates in their minds. If you, verse 5, would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely, he says, right here, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Though your beginning was insignificant, your, your end will increase greatly. Now, this is wrong, of course. This is a wrong assessment. And this is instructive to us as well. When we are seeking to counsel people, we must properly assess what is going on with them. You must not just simply offer up pious platitudes and throw out uh, Bible verses to people to, to try to cure the situation. You must ask questions and assess where they are, how they got to where they are, what's going on, what their thinking is, motivations of the heart, before you begin to make such false assessments. And that that assessment must be right. And why is that? Because every situation doesn't deserve the same response. The Apostle Paul reminds us of, of this. As he speaks to the church at Thessalonica, he says in verse chapter five, verse 14, he says, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, but be patient with everyone. And so we need to assess and typically with with as we are going through various things, we need to assess when we're counseling people, is this a person who is unruly? Are they faint-hearted? Are they weak? If someone is, for example, if someone is unruly and they're struggling with something, I don't just, I don't just need to say Romans 8.28 to them. That's not what they need. They might need to be rebuked at that time. They might need to be admonished if someone is living an unruly life. They might need to be admonished from the word of truth. If someone is faint-hearted or, or weak, they're struggling. They, they want to, and they, but they're struggling. They're, there's a struggle, and they're, they're really wanting to walk with Christ, but they're having a great struggle. You don't just go and rebuke them. You have to assess the situation properly. It's like a doctor. You don't just give everyone Advil, do you? Or a or prednisone. <laughs> Some doctors do that. Some doctors do that. They just but good physicians take the time, they ask questions, they assess things, they they try to put things together and see, okay, this goes together with that. That makes sense now. That's, they try to come to some clarity as to what's going on so that they can prescribe the right medication or treatment for the situation. This is true when we're counseling each other. You must assess what is going on properly. We need to ask questions. One Biblical counselor says, at first, we must develop the self-control of riding the brake in counseling. This means that we must resist the urge to make premature conclusions and give early advice. I find that beginning counselors are often so eager to give biblical answers to counselees that they do not practice the discipline of first gaining a complete picture of the situation Though it may seem like this practice slows counseling down significantly, it is in fact a key part of effective counseling ministry. We must ask questions then. 
The Proverbs say this. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. We must assess. We must ask questions. How did you get here? What happened? How did you get here? Tell me the circumstances. Give me your history. Share your testimony of salvation with me. And that's where you probably want to start with someone you're counseling. Share your testimony of salvation with me. You begin there because the issue might be what? They're not even saved. That's why they're not responding to the word of God in the right way. And they can't really they can't really lay hold of the truth because they don't have the life of God in them. The root of the matter is not in them. So that's why they're not able to really respond to the instruction that you're giving them. So you got to begin by really there. That's kind of the 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 axiom that you begin with. Are they saved? If you discern that, you can ask questions like, well, what happened then? How did what? tell Tell me what's going on. Why are you here? Why are you talking? Why are we talking about these things? Why'd you come to me? Okay. Now, if they're believers, of course, and they're not believers, what do you do? You give them the gospel. They are believers. What do you do? You give them hope. You give them the gospel still. Okay. There's hope in Christ. How did he how did these how did Job's friends get to where they got to? How did they how did they come to the conclusion Job was just a sinner. He must have done something really bad because this just doesn't happen to everyone. This only happens to bad people. It was their theology. Theology is very important. Right thinking about God and about his word is vital. We are sitting with people and counseling them and and informing them, instructing them, and seeking to comfort those in their tragedy. Their theology was off. Their theology was like I said before. If you do bad, you get bad from God. If you do good, God will be good to you. This was not alien to the corpus of Scripture. And I don't think this is alien to all of humanity. This is our natural bent of a works righteousness. This is who we are naturally until the grace of God trains us and, 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 and works in our heart. And even sometimes after salvation, we still kind of can fall into that, work, that works mentality. I need to do good because I'm, I'm suffering right now because I'm doing bad. Now, you might be being disciplined by God. You need to examine that. It might be the loving hand of God bringing you back into correction. This is what the disciples of Jesus thought, too. Who sinned in John 9? That this man was born blind. Was it his mother? Or was it this man or was it his parents? What did Jesus say? He was born blind so that what? The works of God may be manifest and put on display in him. Again, instructive to us. You're trying to deal with the kind of we ask that question. Why am I going through this? Why am I dealing with this right now? Maybe it's the simple reality that God is trying to make his glory on display in your life through your tragedy right now, through your trial and your difficulty. It may be simply that. But that's enough. That's enough. Now, we know that what they were thinking was wrong because you know why? Because God condemned them at the end. The way they were thinking was wrong. They were thinking wrongly about God. In fact, in Job 42, 7, God says, When he spoke to them, he says, my wrath is kindled against you, Eliphaz, the Temanite, and against your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. 
We have to speak what's right about God. We have to speak what's true about God and what's right. And why is this why is this the case? First of all, we have to speak what is right about God because God is a jealous God. God is a jealous God. He's jealous for his name. When we speak about God, we must speak accurately about God, truthfully, because it has some effects. We have to speak truthfully about God because God is jealous. He's jealous for his name. One writer has said this, the God-centeredness of God provides the foundation for us to understand why our salvation hinges on the life and work and blood of Christ. It is, it's essential. But on the flip side, this God-centeredness, speaking of the jealousy of God, this God-centeredness of God is one reason why many others reject Christ. They simply cannot stomach the idea of a jealous God. Well, he is jealous, he says. So jealous that his name is jealous. Exodus 34, 14. If you all remember Oprah Winfrey, she hated this doctrine. If you, if you recall interviews with her through the years, she's, she said why she has rejected uh, what we would call what we call uh, fundamental Christianity and the religion that surrounds that. She says she rejected it because of this doctrine here. She said, she says, I was caught up when I heard my pastor say, the Lord thy God is a jealous God. She says, I was caught up in the rapture of the moment until he said jealous. And something struck me. She says, I was 27 or 28 and I was thinking, God is all. God is omnipresent. God is also jealous, a jealous God, jealous of me. Something about that didn't feel right in my spirit because I believe that God is love and that God is in all things. She was wrong. She was wrong. By the way, that was an excuse by her to reject what she had already rejected in her heart and her mind of this true God. She didn't want anything to have anything to do with it because it wasn't a mental issue. And this is what I want you all to wrestle with, too. When people reject God, it's not a mental issue, meaning that it's not a, a matter of the mind. It's a moral issue. It is a moral issue. Atheists don't have an issue with, with evidence. Ep- Atheists have an issue with morality. I will not bow down to your God. Secondly, it leads others to live contrary to the word of God. It's another reason why we must speak accurately about God. If we don't speak accurately accurately about God, it leads others to live contrary to the word of God. Remember 2 Peter. Three, where they were saying, where's the promise of his coming? And word was being spread. He's not coming back. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Their theology was Christ was not returning. Peter was reminding them, yes, he was. So he goes into an explanation of what will take place during that time. In verse 10 of chapter 3 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Reminded them of, they would be reminded of how they would conduct themselves in light of his return. We do this, though. You ever, you ever sat with someone and you say this right here? God will not put on you more than you can handle. Where is that found? 
What, what verse is that found in? Now, I understand what, you're, what people are talking about. People are probably talking about 1 Corinthians 10, where, where it says that no temptation has overtaken us, except you but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. That's not what that means, though. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have more put on you than you can bear. It sounds pious. It almost sounds biblical. Apostle Paul knew nothing of this. He says in 2 Corinthians 1, he says here, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. Is that more than he can bear? It is. He would say we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. He says, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. If you're telling people, well, God won't put on you more than you can handle, that can lead to a lot of things. It can lead to prayerlessness. Why do I need to pray then? I can handle this on my own. It can lead to isolationism, too, where I don't need the body of Christ. I can bear this. God's not going to put more on me than I can bear because... He already said it, right? No, he has not. And so that's why we have to be careful with when we're counseling people, not to, in their adversity, not to, not to give them cliches, not to give them pious platitudes and things that are not grounded in the word of God. We must be accurate about who God is so that our counsel will be consistent with the God who comforts those who are in need of comfort. For the sake of time, let me stop there. Let me just say this and end our time together this morning. Let us labor to be accurate about who God is. Otherwise, there's really no hope for other, other people. We don't give people hope in, in, without a, an objective reality of who God is, and what he's able to do for us, and 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 what he will accomplish for us and in us, and why he is doing those things. We must understand who God is and counsel out of that reality that God is a God of all comfort. Let us stop there. Let's pray. Amen. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We pray that you'd be pleased to use these things in the hearts of your people that we would grow in our understanding of what that should look like when we sit with people who are, in tra- who are going through tragedy. Lord, help us to be, first of all, be willing to do that, to be willing to sacrifice, to give of ourselves, and to help others. But Lord, help us to go there with a mind to help them and to comfort them with your word, with your truth, Help us to have wisdom to know when to speak and when to be silent, when to encourage, when to help. Help us in all these situations, Lord, to be patient with those who are going through tragedy and allow them the time and the space to grieve. We might be an encouragement to them and a help to them. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.